from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Good morning and welcome sports fans, welcome statistics fans, and welcome business fans. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball here on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. I'm Eric Bradlow. I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. One group of us and our co-host, Cade Massey, here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, and replayed throughout the week. And this is where, again, my three favorite topics collide, sports, statistics, and business. And so the next two hours, we'll, we have guests. We have Kevin Ferrigan from Nothing But Nylon Podcast coming up at the 8.30 hour. We actually have in studio our call to the bullpen guest, Rick Peterson, will be here. Thanks to my co-host, Adi Weiner, who's running a Wharton High School Moneyball program this week. This next two weeks, we'll talk about that. And, of course, this is a call-in show, so if you want to join the conversation, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email our producer, our first-time producer, Matt Datz. You can reach him at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And, of course, you can follow us on Twitter. I just tweeted this morning, at WMoneyBall. So good morning, guys. How you doing? Good morning. Not bad. bad. What did you tweet about? Well, I just tweeted that I was excited to be here for Wharton Moneyball, that I'm expecting and hoping all of our listeners to call in at 1-844-WHARTON. I just said we're ready to roll this morning. Yeah. A lot of interesting sports going on. So using social media to bring the people to the show. Yeah, that's right. So I'll tell you what caught my eye. There's a lot of things that have happened this week. A lot has happened this week. But the one thing that caught my eye, and, and I wanted to do this, well, unfortunately, I, well, not unfortunately, it's fortunate for my 17-year-old son that Adi can only be here for an hour, but it's unfortunate for our listeners that Adi can only be here for an hour. Um, I wanted to talk to you about one of my favorite topics, one of our favorite topics here at, as statisticians, the idea of variance. So I'm going to tell you guys a stat that you may not have heard of. So you, here's something you have heard. You did hear that Jordan Spieth won the British Open. And you did hear, probably, that Matt Kuchar came in second. I heard that, too. Okay. Well, let me tell you an interesting stat, and I'd like to hear your reaction from it. So it turns out that playing it safe in golf is not a good thing. So they've looked at the last... I've never never found it a big part of my game. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Uh, I'm talking... Well, and this is what I want to talk to you about. We could talk... We could say this is a conversation we're about to have about variance. In other words, variation around your mean. We could decide this is a conversation about loss functions. In other words, how important is it? How much utility do you put on winning versus anything else? Of all the golfers, all professional golfers in the last 10 years, there's the most... Least variance golfer, meaning if you take that person's average score and look at the variation around their average score, the least is Jim Furyk, who, by the way, has won one major in his career, and he's played like 100 majors. The second is Matt Kuchar. So Matt Kuchar has very low variance. I assume he's this, steady this Matt comparison is... is at least somewhat controlled for the courses that these players are playing and all this stuff. So a, a good question. So th- let's let's unpack. So when you this. talk about variance, what exactly do yeah, you mean? So let's, yeah. Well, so let me say what I mean about variance. So they've looked at scores in two ways. One is they've looked at the, they've looked at a comparable set of people who have played a certain number of majors, and so that means they've all played the same courses. That's oh, so no, this is only a calculation across the I'm majors get to that, that they've played. No, no, right. no, no. That's one calculation they did. And they said Matt Kuchar is a low-variance guy. All right. In other words, you can count on Matt Kuchar in the last five holes, 
Matt Kuchar's going to be even, Par, minus probably. one, whatever. Yeah. I mean, if you count the bogey on 18, he's even. You can count on Matt Kuchar to be steady Matt Kuchar. They also computed it for all the rounds that they've played. And then you would have to do, and I, there was no adjustment. You would yeah. then have to do an adjustment for the courses they played. It'd be pretty played. easy to calculate some kind of, like, do Absolutely. this all, like, relative to, like, an expected score for that course or something right. like and that. And what they did, just to be clear, so for our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball, they just took Matt Kuchar's average score, and every golfer's average score for the round, looked at the variance, the sample variance of their scores, rank-ordered golfers by high to low or low to high sample variants. Matt Kuchar, matter of fact, the shocking part to me was Jim Furyk, who's got the funkiest swing in golf, has the lowest variance of his scores, which is an interesting thing because most people would think with his crazy top top of his swing movement, he'd have high variance. And the point of this article, and this is what I'd like to get your reaction to, is it really was about loss functions. In other words, your goal is not to be. It, Matt Kuchar has most top tens, by the way, of anybody in the last ten years, but hasn't won. Your goal is to win. Play the high variance, embrace high variance. So I just l- would love well, to hear your reaction. Before we, uh, so you say Matt Kuchar has the most top ten finishes of any golfer in the last ten years, including the top superstars. It was somewhere in the top ten or twenty. Let me just say I don't remember the exact number, but he was somewhere again, extremely is that, is, is that high. Across, up. That's across all tournaments as opposed to just the majors. It was both. Okay. All tournaments. They separated all tournaments yeah. and mm-hmm. the majors. So, yes, he's got extremely high top 10 performance. Let's assume it's top three or something like that, but mm-hmm. no wins in any of those majors. So, I would say, I mean, obviously, the goal, I guess, is to win all the time, right? I mean, yeah, I can understand that. But, I mean, to the extent that you're sacrificing some amount of consistency to win all the time, I would think you'd actually, the ideal goal, the ideal loss function for me would be win the majors. And then always be top ten in the rest of the tournaments because you got to make your money too, right? So yeah, but all these guys. I mean, this is why. But let me ask. Let me first ask you a separate question. But it's it's the, it's the same question. Can you see why, as a statistician, this caught my eye in sports? Yeah, sure. I mean, so that's why I'm saying. I mean, that's your loss. This function. is this is a yeah. This it's, is, it's a trade off of you know variant well, consistency versus like. I, I mean, like it's kind of like I. I mean, I think it's perhaps if we kind of consider these golfers kind of like teams in a team sport. It's our classic sort of debate about whether you'd rather be a fan of a team that, you know, essentially is consistently mediocre or, or like, consistently good but never sort of, like, good enough to kind of go over the top and win a championship versus a team that is terrible some years and then championship contender other years. Right. Do we trust the process? You know, right. Did the Philadelphia 76ers do the what right the, thing? Yeah. They could have been staying along to a, a 35 to 45 yeah. win team, make the bottom part of the Eastern Conference playoffs, never win the championship. You can count on the Sixers to be the seven or eight seed in the East for every single yeah, year. Yeah, I mean, it's the same thing. I, I mean, like, as, as a fan for the last 30 years of the Calgary Flames in the NHL, they basically are the eighth seed or, or eighth to tenth in their conference every year for the last 30 years. Well, Saadi, what are your thoughts about well, this kind of variance? I'm, I'm, actually, I'm t- actually thinking about uh, um, introducing it into my class this afternoon. It was my very first lecture, actually, this morning. Because basically what, what, uh, what you're saying is, is, that, uh, is that you have to decide whether you want to have a slightly higher mean in exchange for a lower variance. And that might not be efficient because in order to win, you're going to need to get two or three standard deviations above average. That's exactly. Thank you for putting it in that view. That's why we have a team here on Morton Moneyball. It's exactly what I'm saying. 
And so it's essentially, if you're going to be in the upper one percentile, you'd rather reach for more variance in your game than higher mean, than lo- and exchange that for lower mean, because then you'll have a better chance of being in the upper upper percentile, which is what you need to win. Yeah, I just thought it was interesting because, again, it just... I, obviously, it was. It's not a random statistic. It was made because Matt Kuchar came in second. I just thought it was, and I didn't think. You know, you've talked about this idea of all of us more than anybody about what you call cherry pick statistics. You could say, well, this happened, so they tried to find a statistic that rationalizes right, that right. describes yeah. it in some way. This one, I didn't actually think. It's not like they said we're going to look at the seventeenth percentile of this distribution right. and say, look what happened. They looked at the variance. Matt Kuchar and Jim Furyk who mo- many people would say they've underperformed compared to their... B- Let's do another statistic, which they didn't do, but you could do. What's their base rate of winning tournaments versus base rate of winning the majors? Mm-hmm. So Matt Kuchar has won lots of tournaments. He's just never won a when major. the competition is lower. And the competition the is lower. And so, the courses are very different. Can, I mean, like, the U.S. Open and British Open are so fundamentally different in terms of... I, I mean, I, I don't know... To, I would assume that those courses being as different as they are from the rest of the courses in, in, in across the, uh, the well, rest of the tournaments would, would actually sort of maybe feed into... Well, would reward high-variance players even more. Well, let more. me tell you the lore. Actually, the lore... As since I'm sort of a golf guy, is the opposite. That the British Open and the U.S. Open have very high rough. As a matter of fact, depends what you mean by high variance. If you mean someone that can hit it 320 but could also hit it 15 degrees off line, the U.S. Open is the most severe penalty for people that don't drive it straight. Then we we have to grind down into what do how how in what way are these golfers high variance? Are they high variance in terms of driving accuracy? High variance in terms of putting, etc., etc. So yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You're right. It's a good point. I was just taking a macro statistic that doesn't drill down into Mm -hmm. you know. And also, by the way, you might want to ask yourself the question. how have they done within a round? Or how have they done when they've been in the like in contention? Right. There's lots of ways you could drill down below this. Can aggregate. I ask an, an observational question? As a non-golfer, a golfer, do you observe this conservative behavior on the course? Do you see? Do you see him trying to just you know almost guarantee it in a two putt, or do you see him? Do you see him trying to make a uh, make a, a sink the putt at a longer distance, potentially leaving him with a much harder second putt and leading we'd, to we'd, we'd a have bogey? To, uh, we'd have to sort of check out his sort of like match logs to sort of see if he. I mean, yeah, I mean, the, Can you the, observe the, 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 well, the indication would be things like it, when he has the option to drive the green, but that's it's kind the, of a high risk shot. Does he choose to drive the green or does he choose to lay up? You well, know? that would be the one. That would be the one way. Not the one way. The, not the, I, mean, I don't want to apply the only way. The best, the classic way people, golfers, would say it is when he has a chance to go for the par five in two, does he choose to do it? Yeah. Or does he choose the more conservative, conservative route. route and try to lay up? And so that, that would, I mean. Because that would produce low variance. It and, would produce and low variance. Mean. And, and by the way, let me just say, when you're leading the tournament, it was interesting, by the way, this is not that surprising. Once uh, Jordan Spieth took the lead on 17. He then went to low variance. Like, he hit an iron off the tee on 18. Well, of course. I got a two-shot lead. Yeah. Matter of fact, I'll hit my putter off the tee at 18. If that'll get me onto this green and two, I could care less. So it's interesting how the top golfers 
go high variance to low variance. You know, in other words, once the win is assured, then you go from high variance but to low variance. But the same thing is true, this idea of exchanging probability, uh, exchanging variance for mean, is true in every sport. I mean, you'll see this at the end of a basketball game. You'll start taking three points. You'll try to be aggressive in order to get the ball back continuously and have a chance to catch up when yeah, you're I down. Just, well, that's why we're football, you by see the way, that, I going? think it's more interesting just in terms of, because, you know, in team sports, it's always confounded with what, you know, how much are the actual players contributing to that lower variance versus a coaching dis- uh, a right. coaching strategy decision? Whereas in, in golf kicks, or tennis, right. it's you know it's all on the individual. So, so if you want to join the conversation and talk about mean versus variance trade off, talk about golf, talk about sports statistics and business, uh, please call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six here on Wharton Moneyball on Sirius XM Radio, business radio powered by the Wharton School. Again, this is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here this morning with my co host Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. So related to that, so not unrelated, very related to that. So Jordan Spieth now has three majors. So I want to ask young you guys, man Jordan, young man is about to turn twenty four. Has it's not the empty tur- Roger Federer. It's nice <laughs> to see. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> in a game, in a sport, you would imagine would be favored by older people than younger one. Here we have a complete reversal. I, well, people question about whether the nerves on the putting still hold for the older golfer okay. versus the yeah. younger golfer. Yeah. But I want to ask you guys a question. So first, let's assume Jordan Spieth has essentially played majors for three years, which is about right. I mean, he's twenty three. Let's not go to his when he was eighteen or nineteen. Yep. So he's played twelve majors. He's won three. Okay? So I have two questions, but let's take them one at a time. He's three out of 12. Last time I checked, that's 25%. Okay? I'm now asking you guys to make a forecast of how many majors Jordan Spieth will win over the remainder of his career. And just to help just to help our listeners with the math, let's assume he'll be highly competitive. Let's just make up a number. Let's say in golf you can be competitive to your early 40s. 20 more years, he's going to play 80 more majors. So he's got three. He's going to play 80 more at a competitive level. He could get injured, but the golfers don't get injured as much. It's not like he's playing football or anything. What would be your guess about how many majors and how would you think about it? I, if you, I don't I'm want to I've seen all. I've well, seen actually, all. wait, wait. Adi's gotten the right thing. I'm going to ask so, a question. I don't right, know. You can the, ask as many questions as you the, want. Go what, ahead. What is the record? What's the second best? What's okay, the I will tell best? you. So Jack Nicholas has the record for majors, and that's 18. So he has 18 majors. Uh, second is Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods has 14 majors. And then you get to people like, you know, Ben Hogan and people like that. And then you get to a lot of the famous greats like Gary Player with Al- nine Arnold and Tom Palmer. Arnold Palmer with uh, seven or eight, Tom Watson with seven or eight. Sam Sneed has quite Sam a few. Sneed might have yeah. 10 or 11. But you go from 18 to 14 to 10 or 11. And then, you know, a lot of guys in the six to eight range, like a Phil Mickelson and stuff like that. Tom Watson. Tom Watson. Is another guy. So where? What? So you keep asking questions if you don't want to make it. But what would you want to know that's going to help you make that prediction? I want to know. Uh, I would want to know what what are the top odds across the majors of the best ranked player? What What does it typically look like? I think I always think it looks like seven to one, eight to one. For the high, the most uh, favored golfer, oh, I think it's even longer. As you remember, we talked that. about is it longer. It, it well, so well, it, well again, d- t- right? So during it, the Tiger years, it was yeah, like yeah, his yeah. odds were like at like five to one, five to one. Okay, which but is right crazy. now, just to let right. you know, for the British Open that just happened, I think Dustin Johnson was the favorite. And he was at like ten or twelve to one. Yeah. So that's the best. Wow! Right. That, that that's what we talked I mean, about really, last what, what, week. What, is that you had to get 
How deep did you have to get in the pool of golfers to even get yeah. to, let's say, 50% probably? We're contrasting yeah, that with yeah, yeah. tennis, where, for example, you, on the men's side, two. you might go three, two deep, <laughs> three deep. And on the women's side, women's side, much more. It'll be interesting to see what Jordan's uh, Spieth's uh, odds are for, like, say, uh, the, the PGA, the, the, the which PGA is coming up in three weeks. In three weeks, coming out of this. But I, I doubt it would be more than, like, you know, but let me ask you, better audience, so, than, like, seven to one. So for our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball, let's imagine, let's take what you just asked the question about. Let's imagine Jordan Spieth has a, well, let's assume it's 10 to one odds, so it's about, about a 9% chance. Let's imagine he has, those are the betting odds, but let's yep. just assume for the moment it's a 9% chance to win any major. Is it anything wrong with just taking 9% times 80? That's roughly an ex- expectation of 7 Add that to the three he has, and therefore, ten. You're assuming he's the best-ranked golfer for the rest of his career. I, I, so I, that's what's wrong with that. Okay. Well, <laughs> I, I mean, it's, okay. uh, well, it's uh, what's wrong? He's but, in I mean, that top set. I'm just trying to get I, a ballpark. It's I, not because right now he's winning tournaments at a far higher rate. Right? right. I'm considering So let's an take an average. Well, right. Sure. And it probably is. Uh, by the end of his career, it will, you know, averaged out. But, I mean, he could easily, I think, average out to a major, in my mind, a major every two years. Right, which is kind of Tiger rate. No, 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 Tiger was no, greater no, no. than that. Much, much, much. Well, think about it. I just said Tiger had fourteen. He basically played majors injury free for only about fifteen years. Okay, yeah, Tiger yeah. was averaging. Yeah. Tiger averaged pretty much one major but, a year, but, and a- but he did have a relatively short career. So let's like sort of like you know compared to a lot of golfers. So let's let's say that Jordan Spieth plays. I, I'm, I'm going to say I'm going to make a prediction of 20, 20, yeah, twenty years, yeah, eighty majors, major every other year, so that gets him to like you know thirteen, kind of basically well, gets quite. him close to Tiger. Wow, I'm not, I'm not, I'm walking far away from that. Oh really? Hell yeah. So how? So as our listeners here, we have let's just use a little bit of language of statistics. We have an empirically observed rate right now of three of twelve point two five. Let's say the great golfers of all time, the greats. Let's even, just for round numbers, let's say they win 20% of their majors, which Tiger did, but, you know, let's even say 15%. How do I shrink back 25%? How far back? And are you even willing to admit yet that he's going to be in that pool of all-time greats that wins even 10% of the majors they play? Because let's say, again, guy that won eight, they played 80 majors, Tom Watson. People would say a great golfer, not the greatest of all time. Great golfer. Let's say he played majors for 20 years. And, he won 10%. And, and I, frankly, I think Watson would have won more. I mean, Watson was a great golfer. And the reason he didn't win more is he go, happened to have the bad luck of golfing at the same time Jack Nicholas did. By the way, can I tell you my- So, I mean, it's also a comment about the competition we anticipate moving forward, right? Can I tell you about my favorite Jack Nicholas uh, stat? So I told you he won 18 majors, the most of all time. Yeah. Does anybody want to guess here how many times he came in second in a major? Mr. Oh, coin flip like, guy, probably like close to 15, 20 himself. 20. Yeah. So a lot of people say he was the closer. No. He was the coin flip guy when it yeah. came to one out he of two. Always there. He, but he was always there. He was, mean, no, 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 no. The amazing part is when you add up his first, seconds, and thirds in majors, it's something like 50-something. It's ridiculous. So it's a huge number. So actually, we have a call here on Wharton Moneyball. So Lee, uh, Lee from Jacksonville, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with uh, Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. How you guys doing? Great. How are you? Good, good. Great. So, curious, how, yeah, please. I am curious, uh, as you're referencing kind of Jack versus Tiger, what's your thoughts on um, kind of conservative play when you're in the head and low variance 
versus kind of a martingale, anti-martingale strategy in financial betting. Um, you know, press when you're ahead and kind of take it easy when you're down. Well, Lee, that's a great question. I'm looking at my colleague, Adi Weiner, who's probably oh, certainly knows a lot about Martingales and its application to finance, but also, uh, you know, let's we were just talking about variants. So pressing, you, when, pressing when you're ahead is it worked well for the Atlanta Falcons. Yeah, so. yeah there right, you well, go. Well, the Martingale is, is, is a betting strategy where essentially you're doubling down every, t- every time, and it's high, high, high variance for a very slight gain. So... Um, that's essentially what what you're asking. Is it worthwhile to take the gambles? And I think that's the answer. I mean, when you're you, when you're down, you take gambles, and when you're on top, you 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 walk away from gambles. That's that's the observed um, strategy, and of course, across most sports, whether it's true in golf, I think it actually isn't true in golf almost from the beginning. Well, Lee, thanks for your call. Let me ask. Let me let me give you the opposite argument, and you guys are going to. Notice I'm not going to use the word momentum. Mm-hmm. I'm going to use the word here non-stationarity. So let's believe, let's take Lee's question and say the following. Let's imagine there's, let's use what also the language of what we in marketing and statistics studies a lot. It's called a hidden Markov model. You have two states in golf, the hot state and the cold state. If I'm in the hot state, go with it, baby. I'm in the hot state. I'm making putts. I've got... Good non-stationarity. Notice I didn't say momentum. Good non-stationarity. I'm performing locally right now better. Press it while you're in the hot state. Gain as many strokes as you can. I'm going to use the language of my colleague, Adi Weiner. All runs count the same. The beginning and the end. Every they stroke do. in the golf tournament counts the same, whether it's on the second hole or the 18th hole. And you know what? If I'm in the hot state, that's when I should get aggressive because I have the greatest opportunity to shave strokes from par so what about that argument? Well, my concern is that you don't know as a player where the, which state you're in. Oh, I think you do. Every, do you think by so? Way, all my listeners, <laughs> all the listeners who have supported me for three years against these two statistical titans, please call 1-844-WHARTON and confirm my belief. That trust me, for someone that's played sports for 30 years, I know when I'm in the hot state. Yeah, well, I do have to you? Say, I, 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 I don't think I've ever been in that hot state in golf. I mean... <laughs> oh, I didn't say golf. Oh, okay. Oh, I got golf. All right, all I, right. I I have to say, I mean, my my experience in baseball is that you do feel like you know you're in the hot seat, but I don't know whether you really have it right. It feels like you have it right. The ball looks like a beach ball when you're really when you're really on it. And I think I'm I'm going to have to say I'm going to I'm going to embarrassing about golf, but I have played mini golf. I'm laughing. when you're hot, you're hot. We're not interested in the hot state in mini golf. Yeah, man. I mean, sometimes you're just like humiliated myself. That hole through the clown's head just looks huge. Look before you guys humiliate yourselves even more. We have David from San Antonio on the line. David, uh, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with uh, Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. Good morning, gentlemen. I'm a professional golfer. I played the tour, so when he discussed golf, uh, I know what you're talking about, and I'm very interested in the discussion, especially about win rates, because it's generally thought about amongst the pros to eclipse Jack's uh, record majors. you got to win one in every four during your best playing years. Well, so, David, it's an interesting... I mean, this is kind of what we were talking about. And matter of fact, thanks for your call. What we were talking about is exactly your point, which is when you're... You know, I'm not, none of us are out there on tour, but we're math guys. You know, it comes down to two numbers. 
what's big N, the sample size that you're going to have to play? Like, are you going to play 20 majors, 40 majors, 80 majors, or 100 majors? How many are you going to play? So let's imagine it's 80. He's going to play 80 more. Uh, But let me just intercept because David pointed out that it really has to do with your prime. And do you have 80 in your prime? Or is it substantially smaller? That's a good question. So let me just say the data that I know. Up until recently, it was rare, extremely rare, that someone beyond the age of 40 won a major in golf. It's not as rare as it used to be, which is not... It was extremely rare when someone in men's tennis won a major beyond the age of 30. 30 yeah. And, you know, you know, all the guys beyond Borg never won a major past 26, McEnroe 25, you know, even Federer, sorry, Sampras, you know, at yeah. 30. But And people always forget, by the way, people say, well, what about Jack Nicklaus at age 46? That um, was an exception, definitely. Uh, he hadn't won a major for six years yeah. prior to the Masters. So, Adi, you might be right. I may be way overestimating the prime golf years that Jordan Spieth has. And you say, well, what's the difference? Okay, well, let's do the math. If it's only 15 prime years, now N is 60 instead of 80. So now to get above Jack, he has to win 25% of the majors between now and the next 15 years. Which is that one in four. Yeah, yeah one it's in back one year. to what yeah, David said right. from San yeah. Antonio. It's back to the yeah. one in four number. Doesn't that seem with the talent in golf today... Doesn't that seem unfathom, unbelievable so. that someone I, I, could win one in four majors? I think one in four is, is absurd, and, and he's the reason why we're talking you about it. You guys are talking about it being absurd. Spieth is doing it. Right. That's why we're having the conversation. <laughs> Going back to we're talking about I mean, Spieth let's, let's, because okay, he all right, did it. All right. Just not, it's conditional not, on his fact that he yeah. did it now. That is not going to mean he's going to do it into the future. Well, no, but it's not like... Can but, we talk about Aaron Judge? But, but <laughs> it, no. doesn't, Same story, it also right? doesn't mean that he's <laughs> we'll not... I, I mean, like, you know, you can't talk about it like it's absurd if we're actually observing it in real time. Well, no, we observed it over 20 12 majors, not over 80. Right. right? So, if, But it's if, not like we haven't, like, v- within the last 20 years, observed somebody do it for, like, you know, okay, 10 years. Okay, that's a good question. How, many, how often have we seen someone start off their career at this pace? Never. Well, Never. so let me just I say, mean, listen it's, to the It's, it's an even quicker it, pace than Tiger if you well, go no, by no, age. There's th- essentially, if you look at his career to date, the only two golfers that have the comparable record are Jack Nicklaus and Tiger Woods. Okay. So that's it. That yeah. is the company at which he's in. That's actually one that's of the most it. relevant pieces of information. Yeah. That this is not well, only this is not only the just the the absurd the maximum of what you typically see, it's an absurdly unlikely maximum. I have a kind of a non statistical question for you I guys. I think but absurd just, means the same thing to you as it does to me. Absurd to mean, me means no. unbelievable. Right? Isn't that like kind of? I would say that's what absurd if, means. If I looked it up, yeah. it would be unbelievable. A and maximum so, among so, the maximum. So we 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 just discussed that two pe- we've observed two other people who have done this exact same thing in the history. Whole history of golf. Right, yeah. and and Shane's so saying, why can't it there be a third? Absurd. He's saying maybe it comes that person. I mean, comes obviously, by, I'm, I'm being saying, somewhat well, semantic. No, no, here, but, but, but let's you know, you're basically saying. That maybe what will Adi? You talk about this all the time here on Wharton Moneyball. Is this a one every year kind of thing? One every five years? Once every generation? Maybe Jordan Spieth is, is the, the generational, generational player. Yeah. So we had Nicholas was his generational player. Then it was Tiger Woods, and now another twenty years later, 
It's Jordan, Jordan Spieth. Spieth. Maybe but, that's what we're observing right now. Right. But my basic betting strategy is to oh. always bet against the generation. Oh, I mean, like, <laughs> no, right. I mean, there's a lot of distance between absurd and likely. But right. I, I, but, well, yeah. I have to ask you guys a question more as a fan. You know, um, and again, if you want to join the conversation, just like Lee and David did, please call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Just got to ask you guys a question as a fan. Um, so. Jordan Spieth, by the way, just so you know, he's won three majors, and interestingly, they're three different majors. He's won the Masters once, he's won the British Open once, and he's won the U.S. Open once. He's yet to win the PGA. Obviously, that would give him the Grand Slam of golf, of which only, I think, six or seven golfers have ever won it, ever won the Grand Slam, won every major. Oh, I'm surprised it's that high. Well, like Gary Player won the Grand... Gary Player, someone you may not have thought of that's won the Grand Slam. And then you have people like Bobby Jones and Snead and all those guys. But of modern era golfers, it's like Gary Player, Jack Nicklaus, and Tiger Woods. That's it in the last 50, 60 years. Here's my question as a fan. If you're Jordan Spieth, would you rather win another Masters? Because you remember one got away, two balls into into the water at the 12th. Or if he could only win one more major in his career, would he rather have another Masters or another PGA, or a PGA, which is thought of as the lowest of the majors, if you'd like, yep. but it would give him the career Grand Slam? I just felt like as a sports fan, it's not a statistical question, where I'm, every once in a while I'm allowed to, allowed to bring in a fan question, would you rather have the career Grand Slam or have a second Masters? Career Grand Slam. In my opinion. I have no opinion. You have no opinion. Not opinion at all. You have no opinion whatsoever. I just don't have enough familiarity with golf. By the way, only really five know. golfers have won the career grand slam. Is that the number? Sam, oh, okay. so that, so I knew Sam Snead didn't sound right. I think Sam Snead never won the U.S. So Open. that's an actually interesting okay, point. Okay, so it's only so, five. So given yeah. the rarity of that, I would have to then agree with Shane. Okay. All right. I was just interested as fans yeah. how you guys were thinking about So that's the, how I think about it. How unusual Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, again, yeah. I think he's going to – I'm, I'm hopeful that he's – you know, got kind of his productivity such that it's not not an issue that he wins both more majors right. and <laughs> also clips, uh, uh, clip, uh, gets the Grand Slam. And a similar thinking, we had uh, Keith Law came to speak to our, our Moneyball Academy yesterday, and we talked about um, um, the robbing of the MVP from Mike Trout tort in favor of Miguel Cabrera and the, se- and the sentiment. He was trying to understand as a baseball writer why everyone did that, even though the the sabermetrics and anyone really thought about it. Recognized we talked about the year Cabrera won the triple crown. That's right. Yeah, uh, and essentially, the, what, I think it's what, pretty clear why Cabrera won the MVP. And that essentially, year. what he said was that the rarity of the triple crown was so exciting and interesting yeah. that that's how we won it. Mm-hmm. Has has anybody? I, 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 maybe you have looked at this. You know, as I please correct me if I'm wrong. The same year that Joe DiMaggio had the 56 game hitting streak is the year that Ted Williams hit 400. Yes, yes. Okay. 41. Yeah. So who won the MVP that year? DiMaggio. DiMaggio. Okay, and sabermetrically is. Was Ted Williams must have been a far superior, way, way more. Okay, so it's not like this is the first time that nope. anyone's ever been ripped off. Nope. Oh nope. no, and there are lots of ripoffs even much later. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we don't even have to get into the Cy Young and some of the ripoffs that oh, have well, been that, over that history. That we can certainly talk about. And so uh, we actually have another caller, Mike from Ohio. Uh, Mike, welcome to Wharton Moneyball again. This is Eric Brado, and I'm here with Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. How can we help you today? Uh, good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Uh, listening to your conversation. It got me to thinking, what are we more likely to see again, 
a 300 game winner in Major League Baseball or someone to break Jack Nicholas's uh, 18 majors. Wow, we're never seeing another 300 game winner in baseball. Well, there's Shane's answer. <laughs> yeah, so Mike, this is. I a mean, great, we may never right. see somebody break Nicholas's record. Mike, either, this but is this is a great topic of conversation. We may, by the way, we're going to speak about it now. We're going to take a break in a little bit. We're going to speak to Kevin Farragan. We may have to talk about your comment for the next like. Three months, but let, why don't we get to that? So, uh, Shane, what's your thought? Well, again, Spieth, I mean, you, you can argue whether or not it's gonna he's going to be able to maintain it, but Spieth is on pace to challenge Jack Nicklaus's record, right? He basically, in his early career, is having a similar early career to what Nicklaus himself did. Yes, right? yes. There is no pitcher in baseball that's even close to on pace for 300 games. Right, and it's just not something that we do anymore because pitchers just aren't used that way. I mean, I mean, the game has changed such that it essentially, I think, almost eliminates the possibility of a three hundred game winner. Yeah, they pull you out in the seventh they, inning in close games, so you don't have a chance to win it, win those games. It's so the very, win very, rate, very the hard. win rate amongst pitchers, the is, win rates per start is, is way exactly, down than exactly. it is historically. Yeah. So you don't think? I don't want to say it's not possible, but like, you know, let's imagine you have a pitcher that comes up at age 22 or 23. Let's let's imagine they pitch for He's 20 seasons. He's already had his Tommy John surgery. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> let's imagine had it they in high pi- school. Let's imagine they pitch for 20 seasons. 20 times 15. 15. Well, so which, oh, which one? Which one? This is the math. Which one's more likely to you guys? 20 times 15 as a pitcher in baseball or 20 times one of somebody in golf? It's interesting. I mean, so what? What Shane? They're both is, twenty. They're both 20. twenty so, times what, one, what, twenty times fifteen. What Shane is saying is that the baseball baseball has changed so much that 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 three hundred is just not in the cards yeah, because we I, don't I, play the game that way. And uh, unless it changes back, we're not going to see that. But the real question is, we're not investigating this. Nicholas, that eighteen majors is insane, also, right? By some measure, so, and as and I think golf has changed. I think they're they're incredibly more competitive at the top. And I think they'll stay competitive at the top for longer. So I, in some sense, both milestones have moved back. What's, of course, interesting about that, and we're going to take a break here. What's interesting about that is, of course, you could say Nicholas is so far exceeded of everybody else. His is harder because 300 wins. There have oh, been yes. players, yeah. many players. Even recent ones. Even recent ones to get to 300. So if you want my guess, I would say exceeding Nicholas is going to be harder than 300. But time will tell. But it's a great question from Mike from Ohio. So this has been the first quarter, if you'd like, of work. Moneyball. Thanks for all three of our callers, Lee, David, and Mike. We'll be taking calls as well for the next 90 minutes. We have Kevin Farragan joining us from Nothing But Nylon podcast. So please stay with us here on Wharton Moneyball and join us right after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. And there was a lot of collision in that first half hour. This is Eric Bradlow. I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen. Adi Weiner had to step out, but he'll probably step back in. We're here on Wharton Business Radio, Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. We had a number of great callers in the first half hour. Let's keep that momentum going of callers for the next 90 minutes of our show. And again, some combination of myself, Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner, and Cade Massey are here every Wednesday morning live from 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern and replayed throughout the week. So, Shane, we're very fortunate. I mean, we know both you and I are huge NBA fans, but sports fans in general. We're fortunate here on Wharton Moneyball to have Kevin Farragan, who's joining us. Lots of different roles for Kevin, formerly of the statistics and analytics group with the Dallas Mavericks. He's an independent writer who focuses primarily on the NBA, but also 
what are what we do how to use numbers to analyze the NBA effectively he also hosts the nothing but nylon podcast which is nylon calculus's official podcast so kevin uh, welcome to Wharton Moneyball this is Eric Bradlow and I'm here this morning with my co-host Shane Jensen Hi guys uh, th- thanks for having me on I appreciate it Great. It's great to have you on. So, you know, I, I want to ask you a ton of questions about what's going on in the NBA right now, but let me just start with kind of the most basic question, or maybe many, many of our listeners want to know, how do you get to a job which appears to be like a dream job for most of us sports statistics and business geeks? How do you get a job in the statistics and analytics group with an NBA team? Like kind of what's your path that you get to work for the Dallas Mavericks? Uh, so as somebody that... Uh look at uh, the numbers i'd be remiss to, to not start with luck <laughs> there you go probably probably the the biggest piece um the that was really um so i, I interned for the mavericks uh for a season and that was basically the product of um right place right time and uh sending a, in an application for a position that was open for about all of a week um, and I had a connection to um, to the Mavericks uh, director of analytics. I forget if that's his official title, but um, he used to be a he was uh, an attorney and a uh, blogger like me um, for a while, and he developed a, sort of a, a model for projecting uh, draft uh, projecting prospects uh, going into the draft. Um, to project their performance using their college statistics, and then that helped them land a job with, with the Mavericks. Uh, his name was James uh, Bricado. And uh, so I knew him a little bit from uh, when he was blogging, and uh, we had interacted a bunch on Twitter. And um, when he was just getting started out, I remember promoting his work a lot on my Twitter feed um, just because uh, I thought it was really good, um, and I thought it was interesting. So he knew me a little bit, uh, and... Um, I happened to know that the job was open because uh, Seth Partnow, who uh, was the editor-in-chief of Nylon Calculus, now works for the um, Milwaukee Bucks, had mentioned um, in an email thread, hey, there's, you know, this job is open. Uh, you guys, some of you guys would probably be interested in applying for it. So um, I applied for it, and... Uh, and um, Well, a lot of us would wonder, a lot of us would also wonder the question, um, since we see Mark Cuban, he's one of the most visible owners in the NBA, um, even if it's not just about Mark Cuban, I assume this implies that both Cuban and the Dallas Mavericks organization are very analytics oriented. And so if you could give us, without giving away any secret sauce or anything you're not supposed to divulge, can you give us an example, even if it's not a specific player or a specific thing, can you give us an example of an analytics project just generally that you worked on with the Dallas Mavericks, whether it was, you know, the draft or, you know, how to compensate players, or maybe it was something more on the business side. Can you give us an example of a, what an analytics project looks like for an NBA team? Yeah, so um, without without getting too much into the specifics yeah. uh, and, and violating the terms of my NBA, <laughs> I, think, uh, I think I can speak very generally to the point that uh, the thing that I was primarily involved with doing was uh, to – and track uh, different actions um, in 
in the games. So actually, uh, in game, actually, so Kevin, again, we're talking to Kevin Ferrigan of the Nothing But Nylon podcast, formerly of Statistics and Analytics of the Dallas Mavericks. So just to be clear, you guys are actually at the Dallas Mavericks. This is I'm not sure we've always talked about this on Wharton Moneyball, but I'm not sure we've actually had anyone that's talked about this just even generally. You guys did actually in game analytics for decisions about th- uh, within the game. So it, it was. It, it wasn't like live in-game analytics. Uh, I, I believe there were members of the team who, who did do that. Um, but uh, this is actually looking at all the games uh, throughout the league. So there was uh, more than one. Basically, there was more than one person that uh, held my position, and they, so they because it it's very labor intensive to do this kind of tracking. Um, we're trying to track every single game. Uh, in fact, very specific things. Um, within those games and so uh, because of it, like I said it's pretty labor intensive it wouldn't be live um, I, I do believe they did have somebody that was that was tracking stuff live uh, for their games but um, it, yeah it was the same kinds of stuff uh, but like I said I, I'm not allowed to speak sure. specifically what what we uh, what we track. Yeah, sounds great. So um, we're gonna—I think we're gonna try to get you back on a slightly better line here. Our, our, our host, our producer Matt's gonna try to get you on a slightly better line. So Shane, while we're getting Kevin here back on the line, um, you know, what examples? I know you've done a lot of work with data after the fact. Have you seen in your—you know—let's call it twenty-year career now, fifteen, twenty-year career working at stats? You know, teams kind of doing in-game analytics, whether it's baseball. Like, I would imagine with StatCast and all the data sets that are available today. And, you know, I don't know if the day's going to come where they're going to allow iPads in the dugout or, you know, uh, coaches on the sideline to be, you know, streaming, you know, real data down to the field. What what do you see there? Well, I mean, I think, obviously, I I think there is a lot of in-game analytics going on on things like, you know, I mean, if you sort of think about sports where, you know, there'd be the greatest amount of juice to sort of being adaptive in a game i mean examples of in-game and like things that are based on in-game strategies that are based on analytics yeah i mean you know you can look at something like you know defensive shifts in baseball obviously but i don't think those are necessarily adaptive based on what the player has done so far in the game right football obviously there's a lot of adaptation about what you know i mean i'm sure that the kind of calculations that teams do like let's take this a couple of the strategic calculations things like two-point conversions or fourth down going forward on fourth down those are great examples um I'm sure that teams are sort of adapting, say, for example, their decision-making process for going forward on fourth down based on what has been working or not working in the game, based on whether or not, you know, they've, for example, like, what is their running game working so far, you know, in the game? And that's going to obviously inform whether or not they kind of continue to go for it on fourth down. Well, we'd love to hear from our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball. If you have your best story of the use of in-game analytics, matter of fact, Shane and I will give you a big shout-out. I'll tweet it at W Moneyball if that, for someone that calls in and tells us about the best use of in-game analytics. Uh, please call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. You can also email our producer Matt Dats at businessradio at siriusxm dot com. But I'm offering something, Shane, of tremendous. This value here, a tweet out at wow, W yeah, Moneyball no, I mean, that is, for someone that calls in with the best use of in-game analytics. You will blow up after that, man. It's going to be crazy. Oh, it's going to be. I'm going to get someone millions 
of followers on millions. Twitter from That's this. Right. Absolutely, right. or or at least tens. Yeah, or at least tens. But you know, we'll we'll see how that goes. Uh, oh, it seems like we have Kevin back on the line. Kevin, sorry about that. We just wanted to make sure we had you on a better line. Uh, does this sound? Let me just hear. Uh, so you were telling us about. Well, let me transition to a slightly different topic then, which is you know we talked about kind of your history uh, with the NBA and a little bit of the work with the Dallas Mavericks. Um, you know, you obviously have a podcast now, Nothing But Nylon, without giving us everything that would be on your podcast. What the hell? I'm going to ask this in a very scientific way. What the hell's going on with the Cleveland Cavaliers, and what do you see happening with the Kyrie Irving situation? Yeah, this is uh, this is one of the things that makes the NBA fun that, that doesn't have anything really to do with the numbers, but uh, <laughs> it seems like... Uh... It seems like Kyrie uh, has gotten his ring, and he has uh, maybe maybe other priorities for for the rest of his career. Um, and maybe he just doesn't like LeBron very much. <laughs> I don't know. LeBron seems like he could be kind of a hard guy to get along with uh, if you're not, uh, I don't know, one of his one of his good friends from from growing up. So uh, yeah, it just seems like a lot of uh, friction between the two of them, and. Uh, seems to have come to a head. Well, I've got some numbers for you, uh, Kevin. Again, we're talking to Kevin Farragan of the, from the Nothing But Nylon podcast. Um, I've got three numbers to give you and just love your reaction to it. So last year, I don't know, uh, Kyrie Irving, the Cavaliers were 0-8 when LeBron didn't play. They were minus 20, 120 in the NBA Finals when LeBron was not on the court. And during uh, Kyrie Irving's first three years in the NBA without LeBron, they had a 360 winning percentage. So... As someone that kind of thinks about numbers and analyzes sports, wouldn't you have grave concerns if you were a team and saying, we're going to make, if you'd like, Kyrie Irving the number one as opposed to being the number two on a team? I mean, we have some data to suggest that when he's number one, there are challenges. Yeah, I, and uh, but, uh, but though I think one 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 argument you could make and i maybe kevin i'd love to hear your thoughts on this is that you know he's obviously a number 2 on a team with the biggest number 1 in the nba and probably in basketball over the last generation right maybe he would be more comfortable being kind of i mean maybe not the number 1 guy on a team but maybe paired with somebody slightly less high profile so that he himself could shine i i'm i'm tr- just guessing at his motivations here yeah, so I, I would say um, to the to the first point about the numbers around Kyrie, uh, I wrote an article um, a couple of years ago now, I guess, uh, and it was when he it was I think during the first finals there with with Cleveland or no, it was a, I think it was either the finals that Cleveland won. It might have been the finals that Cleveland won, um, but Kyrie had struggled the first two games, and then uh, I wrote this piece, and it would, had been kind of building for a while, but it was basically that the title of it was Kyrie Irving is overrated, uh, and it that got picked up by uh, the Cauldron, which is uh, sports affiliated with Sports Illustrated, and so I got a lot of flack from Cleveland fans because Kyrie proceeded to go out and have a bunch of really good offensive games, and they said, you know, you said he's overrated, da 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 da. Uh, and you know it, uh, it none of the things that he did really uh, went against my point which is that he's an uh, elite scorer and he does that very well but he doesn't necessarily make guys around him better and his defense is really really bad um, and so you know he can have games where he looks incredible um, and you know fans will yell at you if you say that he's not that great um, but we've kind of seen it with him that uh, even with LeBron on on the team, when LeBron's off the floor, Kyrie, the team doesn't look so good with just Kyrie um, or even just Kyrie and uh, Kevin Love. You would think with two all stars that they would be that 
they would look pretty good, but they, they still don't. They really only look good when, um, when LeBron is on the floor. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I would have concerns about about giving up the farm for Kyrie. Um, I think if you're going to build a team for Kyrie, it's got to be a very specific kind of team. Um, I think of him a little bit like uh, like Allen Iverson um, when he was in his prime. The, the Sixers built a team that was basically all defense and role player guys that just kind of were cool with watching uh watching Allen Iverson go and, and do his thing on the offense. Remember end. you're talking to us here at Wharton Wharton Moneyball in Philadelphia. So we, yeah, we live yeah. the uh, Allen Iverson era yeah, and very, so very we're we're calling you're calling you're speaking to us live from the Sirius XM studio right here in good old Philadelphia. So there's no one that remembers the Allen Iverson era more than the two of us. And you're right. It's it, that, cause that was gonna be my next question, Kevin, is how do you then if Kyrie Irving's your guy, as you were just about to lay out for our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball and again if you want to join the conversation with Kevin Ferrigan or myself, Eric Bradlow, or my co-host Shane Jensen, please call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. What kind of team? Or let me ask you a different question. Rather than building a team, what team do you see out there if you dropped Kyrie Irving into it? Let's assume that team stayed relatively stable. That he would be a good fit for, given the analyses that you've done of his skill set, if yeah, any. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really tough. Um, you know, if you look specifically at the teams that were on his list, there it doesn't really seem to be there. Uh, I think the list was the Knicks, the Spurs, um, uh, the the Heat, and uh, I don't remember yeah. if Phoenix was on the list. But with Brandon Knight now potentially out for the season, I think Phoenix should get onto his list. Yeah, I think I think. Um, Phoenix has been rumored to be interested. I, I think one of the teams that, that might be a good fit and that is actually was on the list, they were the last team on the list, is the, the Timberwolves um, because they have uh, some defensive pieces. Uh, Carl Anthony Towns isn't a good defensive player yet. Uh, most of the data suggests that he's actually pretty bad, but um, that's thought, remarkable. Not, Can you talk about a little bit about, you know, just for our listeners who are in Wharton Moneyball, where that statistic or I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm saying cause that's interesting because I think most people when he came out of college thought of him more as, man, this guy's going to have to work on his offensive game and his defensive game seem better. And so I'm not denying what you're saying is true. But like on what metrics is has it been shown that he's kind of not a great defensive player? Uh, so the, the one that uh, kind of jumps out is um, – the real plus minus metric from ESPN. Uh, so that uh, metric has a pretty long uh, track record prior to it being sort of bought up by ESPN. Um, it used to be called X uh, RAPM, which is just an awful name. But <laughs> it's uh, uh, in, in any event, it is a basically a, a um, adjusted plus minus metric, mm-hmm. uh, which is basically takes um, your the, the raw plus minus of like when you're on the court versus when you're off and it uh, uses regressions to adjust uh, for uh, teammates and uh, opponents to try to give you a, a, an estimate of sort of um, player value when they're on the court. Uh, what the uh, real plus minus does in addition is it uh, uses a statistical based prior um, to kind of inform the regressions. Uh, so sometimes with adjusted plus minus uh, stuff, you would see players like Nick Collison uh, shoot up to the top and everybody would always kind of say, well, that doesn't feel right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the uh, statistical prior kind of mitigates some of that and also uh, tends to pre- perform uh, with those results, tends to perform better out of sample. 
Um, so that's what real plus minus is. And real plus minus really is uh, quite down on both Carl uh, Anthony Towns and Andrew Wiggins' uh, defense. Um, and uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, Towns is uh, a young player. Young players tend to be pretty bad on defense um, initially. Uh, it usually takes them a little while to, to figure out the nuances of NBA defense. And I think it probably has gotten more challenging as the league is um, gotten more intelligent about offense. Yeah, let me interject with a couple questions just from the time you spent. Again, I'm not asking you to ask any secrets. Just a more general question about the time you spent at the Mavericks. Is this the kind of data that you've heard in discussions with the Mavericks or other teams that this is something they recognize and they bring into account? Like, if we trade Kyrie Irving for Andrew Wiggins, we may take a step back defensively or something like that. Is this something that teams are talking about? Um, so I wasn't involved necessarily in any of the, the discussions around um, trades and, and things like that. What, what I will say, though, is that most of the teams that are that are hiring people from places like uh, like Nylon Calculus, um, there's been a bunch of guys that have uh, gotten hired recently. And then, like I mentioned, James uh, Brocato from the Mavericks, was he didn't write for Nylon Calculus, but he did very similar work on his own independent blog um, before being hired. And most of the people, or I would say probably all of the people uh, that are being hired right now uh, know the, the sort of um, what you can get out of uh, sort of the, the pluses and minuses, to, to kind of make a pun out of it, uh, of th- these kinds of metrics um, in terms of what they tell you as far as impact goes um, and, you know, what they, they can and can't tell you. Because as I mentioned, there are estimates of player value and there are caveats with how they're constructed and, and those sorts of things. And understanding uh, what's in them and, and what's not is, uh, is always useful. Um, but yeah, I, I think that it's something where it's in the background of, uh, of all those kinds of discussions that, you know, teams are, have a pretty good sense, both from qualitative and quantitative data of, uh, you know, they have the, the numbers and then they have scouts. And, uh, you know, I think in general, uh, the scouts would tell you that Towns has all the tools to be a very good defender, uh, whether he actually puts it together um, and it's, it takes coaching and uh, actually gets there is another thing. But um, I think, you know, so th- there's there's two different pieces to it right now. He's not a good defender. And I think most of the data and probably most scouts would tell you that. Um, but he has everything that you need to get there, and he's uh, supposed to have a, a very good work ethic. So, um, you know, I, I think he'll probably get there in time. Well, Kevin, we'd like to thank you for joining us this morning here on Wharton Moneyball, Sirius XM Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Uh, where li- all of our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball, we encourage you to look out for Kevin, his work on Nothing But Nylon podcast uh, as part of Nylon Calculus. So, Kevin, thank you for joining myself and Shane Jensen this morning on Wharton Moneyball. Yeah, thanks again for having me. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Uh, so, you know, Shane, as you know, as I was thinking about in our last few seconds before our break, as I was thinking about what Kevin was saying, I'm saying, man, I mean, there are so many statistics out there today. Um, you know, it's hard to kind of know which ones to look at. Yeah, no, it, it's true. And I mean, I think that that's what makes sort of like having like a, a, a kind of a, a well-experienced analytics team so valuable because, I mean, you know, collecting data to a certain extent is pretty easy and, and processing simply data, relatively easy. That's an engineering problem. But you really need, like, to actual analyze the data and find out what's most appropriate for your team. That's the analytics. 
Well, that's why, Shane, you and I get to keep our yeah. jobs. That's why we get to keep our jobs. So that's the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We've got a great second half, including Rick Peterson in studio. So please stay with us and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back here to the second half of Wharton Moneyball, where sports, statistics, and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here this morning with my co-host, Shane Jensen. We had a great number of callers in the first hour. We also had Kevin Farrigan from Nothing But Nylon talking about the NBA, but Shane... When it's July, no, yeah. that's baseball season. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah, that's right. I that's mean, right. I have to admit, we're not thinking. I mean, you and I are always thinking about the NFL. I mean, guys are reporting. Yeah, your buddy Tom Brady's about to turn forty. We could talk about the NFL. Golf was exciting for a while there, but it's baseball yeah, season. No, this, and is, this is the main thing that I'm focused on during the dog days of summer. And you're wearing your Red Sox hat, which, yeah. as you know, offends me every single time. But thank you that's for why doing I that. Wear it. That's where. That's good. That's good. But of course, when it's July. And it's Wharton Moneyball, and it's baseball season. That means it's time for the call to the bullpen. Here comes the skipper on his way to the mound. That's going to be all for his starter this afternoon. Einstein said it best. It's great to have an open mind, but you don't want it so open that your brains fall out. Your mind is your master, and your body is your servant. When you can get your mind to train your body at that level, now you're mastering your mind to go with it. At the 0-1 count, Chipper Jones hit 192. If you let Chipper hit the first pitch against you, cut your arm off and eat it. In God we trust, all others must have data. Wharton Moneyball's Call to the Bullpen with Rick Peterson. Well, Rick, it's for those of us that, you know, obviously you can't see us since we're here on the radio, but uh, Rick Peterson is actually in our studio here in Philadelphia. We'll talk about in a second why he's here. For those people that uh, haven't heard Rick every other week here on Wharton Moneyball, Rick's a former Major League pitching coach with the Mets, A's, Brewers, and Orioles. He's a, now a keynote speaker, sought-after motivational speaker, and a co-author of his book, Crunch Time, How to Be Your Best When It Matters Most. Rick, it's great to have you physically here in the studio. Wow, this is like way too cool, i got to say it. And this is like a wow. But I got to say it backwards. Well, wow. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's great to have you here. So maybe you could just start with our listeners and tell us. Um, so the Wharton, I'll just for our listeners, I'll tell a little bit about the Wharton Moneyball program. This is something that my co-host Adi Weiner started a couple years ago. It's a statistics, sports, and business program for high school students. As you know, the passion for analytics now goes all the way down to the kids that are following baseball stats. Um, so maybe you could tell our listeners. So what are you going to be talking about today uh, when you're talking to the high schoolers here on Wharton Moneyball? Well, you know, one of the key keynotes that I do is the leadership lessons from Moneyball. And um, I've done this many times in, in many companies as well. And so it really tells the whole granular story about what Moneyball was really about, what the concept was about, how Michael Lewis really reframed. You know, I mean, when he, I mean, he, he's a Wall Street guy, as we all know. And he had written Liar's Poker. And he came down to write an article for the New Yorker magazine. And after three weeks in spring training, he called his publisher and said, this is a this is a bestseller. And so his publisher said, you know, go for it. So he traveled with us the entire season. And I always used to sit in the back of the bus and, you know, for obvious reasons, because they very seldom, like, back into accidents. <laughs> <laughs> I, li- I like that idea. Right, right. Never heard that before. <laughs> right. So, you know, it was so unbelievable. Like, we're sitting, like, le- next to each other like we are right now. And, you know, we would have these really intense philosophical conversations about, 
you know, how the game is changing, how analytics is starting to be utilized. And, you know, the one thing that's really interesting, in, and he actually, when he sent me a copy of the book, you know, he said, Dear Rick, he said it was, you know, something along the lines, like, great traveling, you know, great to know you, the whole deal. Maybe the next time we'll talk about the pitching in Moneyball, because the pitching never got mentioned. And what was really amazing, you know, as I've started this new chapter in my life of keynote speaking and, you know, building a website and so on down the line. So I was going through, like, some old... DVDs that I've had for all these years, and I started playing them. And I don't know if you remember, but MLB Network years ago, um, they had this uh, kind of series of Prime Nine, and, they, and, they, and yeah, nine, absolutely and, yeah, right. And so it was like the nine best right fielders. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. And so I went, I, you know, so I had all these copies, and I, I hadn't seen them, but I didn't even know what was on it because it didn't list what was on it. So they uh, Prime Nine, and they, you know, the, the, the announcers going through it. It's like the nine top pitching rotations in the history of Major League Baseball. The Moneyball rotation was number nine. Wow, yeah. So you're telling number me, nine. I always forget, so you'll Hudson, remind me, Mulder, Hudson, Mulder, Zito. and Zito was the in the top three. nine. The yeah. big three. Yeah, but but also Corey Lytle, who we mm-hmm. just got. Yep. I mean, when you think about it, everybody you know looks at Mulder, Hudson, Zito for obvious reasons. But Billy Bean traded Ben Grieve to Tampa yeah. for Corey Lytle, who was a long man for Tampa, meaning that he's pitching in the 100 games they're losing. Yeah, yeah. And and the Bill, long man's probably the le- typically the least important role for he's a pitcher, pitching in, or the, where you put your least important pitcher. Yeah, he's sucking up innings yeah. when you're down by three, four, five runs, yeah. whatever, just finishing up the game. And and he had four plus years, four four years and change in the big leagues, and I believe he only had twelve or fourteen career starts. And Billy made the trade and said he's in our rotation. So remind so, remind us what what did. Billy, what did you guys see in Corey Lytle that said the, actually this guy's being underutilized in, in in this long man role? Well, it wasn't that I, I I'm not really sure because our scouts were the ones yeah. that recommended, but our scouts I, I spent a lot of time with our scouts and helping our scouts understand this is the profile of how we develop our pitching. So it was very clear, like they they knew that if they went out and got someone like Corey Lytle, who could change speeds, he could locate his fastball. Um, and he, he had some potential that was untapped. His delivery needed to get cleaned up in order for him to repeat it consistently to make strikes or throw strikes. But Corey, I, I want to say Corey was 13 and maybe 8 or 9 that year, and when we won 20 consecutive games, Corey had 42 consecutive scoreless innings that year. Wow. That's wow. unbelievable. Yeah, unbelievable number. I mean, when I, when I really look back, when, during the years of Moneyball, during those years, I mean, we went to the playoffs four consecutive years with the payroll that we had that was under $40 million. And after we won 102 games in 2001, 2002 was the Moneyball year. So we lost, we lost uh, uh, Jason Giambi, MVP, to the Yankees. Johnny Damon, all-star center fielder, and all-star closer, Jason Isernhausen. And we had no money to replace it. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, we, we replaced Jambi with Scott Hatterberg, the backup catcher for yeah. the Red Sox. Yeah. yeah, He never played one game at first base in his life, including Little League. And an average of about 250, 270 at-bats a year. And then we got Billy Koch from Toronto, who was a, long, he was a long man at that time. Yeah. Billy, and I had Billy as a kid. And so Billy Bean asked me, he says, what do you think? I said, his delivery is absolutely awful right now. There's no way, That's why he doesn't throw strikes. So he said, well, give him a call and ask him if he's open to make some changes. So I called Billy and, you know, I was like, hey, Billy, how you doing? It's like, yeah, great, great. I said, listen, when you come to spring training, if you're open to this, we're going to go on a backfield day one, get away from all the press, and we're going to rebuild this delivery. And we're going to rebuild it so you can throw strikes. And he said, hey, I'm all, I'm all in. Yeah. Well, he broke... 
the all he holds the all time major league record to this day of any closer to have forty wins and ten or forty saves and ten wins. He had forty four and eleven. Wow, wow! And we won a hundred and three games. After I mean, I'm just thinking of the number of innings. Also, he must have pitched that year, probably close to 80. Yeah, I was about to say. So we're here talking to Rick Peterson, former major league pitching coach, uh, keynote speaker, motivational speaker, and co-author of Crunch Time: How to Be Your Best When It Matters Most. Rick, we were just talking about a topic. Actually, one of our callers just brought it up. And if you want to join the conversation, ask a question for Rick Peterson about the Moneyball era or any of his time with the Mets, the A's, the Orioles, etc. Please call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight. One of our callers, Mike, uh, just asked a question. Will anybody ever, he didn't ask it exactly this way, but will anybody ever win 300 games again? Now, of course, you spent a lot of time with a 300-game winner who even mentioned you in his Hall of Fame speech, as we know many times. Um, He might be the last one, though. Yeah, is he going to be the last three? We're talking about Tom Glavin, of course. Is Tom Glavin going to be the last 300-game winner we ever see in baseball? I believe so. I believe so. I I don't think anybody... Well, number one, I don't think anybody is going to have the longevity in yeah. order to do that. I mean, I got to tell you, when you can't do. Tw- I'm just, we so, so I, I, I was you just can't looking. do twenty times fifteen. Well, well, twenty well, years, okay, fifteen well, wins well, a year. Well, here, here's the thing: it was interesting. I don't know if you read Brian Kenny's book, Above the Curve. I believe it is. I, I haven't. This is amazing, and, I, and I'm probably not going to be exactly on this, but I want to say it was like somewhere back in in from 1920s, somewhere in that range, to 2015. There was ten thousand. Like one hundred and like something like nineteen starts for starting pitchers. Think about this: that pitched seven innings, seven innings, and gave up two earned runs. They pitched seven innings and gave up two earned runs. What do you think the winning percentage of those ten thousand starts plus was? If I oh. pitched seven innings and gave up two earned runs or less, let's say no, two earned runs, two earned runs exactly. I would 650 have, probably. Yeah. I was going to guess somewhere in that range. Yeah, I was. I, I guessed about 75%. Yeah. It's about 37%. So when you take a look, that that's why when you listen to Brian Kennedy and he devalues the win, so to speak, when you evaluate starting pitching because of the fact that yeah. how many great starts you can have and not get a win. Yeah. I mean, when you think about seven innings and give up two earned runs – and you're you're winning less than forty percent. I mean, you really games? do. I mean, to, for this record, uh, for us to have a th- another three hundred game winning, you're going to have to have the perfect storm of three things. Obviously, an incredibly good pitcher on a very good team, consistently you on a very good team. Runs. Yeah, they got to score. That, that has that has longevity. Well, and, and or, so that, I, I, think, I thought you were going to get to the fourth one, which I'd love Rick's thought about. Um, you better have essentially Mariano Rivera as right. your closer because or, or someone's Zach yeah, or and, Zach Britton. Someone's gonna, or, and, thank and, you for the Orioles. Someone's going to have to win Kenley this. Or Jensen. Yeah, there yeah. we go. Or Jensen. Yeah, yeah. someone's going to have to win these games, right? And right. you're going to have to close these games. Because I, right. I, th- I think the uh, obviously I think the the. the Probably the current pitcher that's got the best chance is, is Clayton Kershaw. Yeah, what do you think about Kershaw? He's averaging 17 wins a season, right, he's and also, he's, he's, done 10, 10, he's done 10 seasons at 17 wins a season. He obviously has to do another eight seasons at 17 wins a season in order to get to 300. But the issue, he's got he's got chronic back yeah, issues. Yeah, no, I mean, I think the longevity is going to be his, his, his particular personal roadblock. But i, I got to tell you, and actually this comment is actually in our book, as as Tommy was approaching 300 wins, you know, oftentimes I would open up the press guide, you know, back in the coach's room, and I'm looking at the press, I'm going, Jesus, are you, are you, are you kidding, are you kidding, you're kidding me, right? And I, and the one day I walked out, and, and Tommy's sitting in the, you know, one of the leather lounge chairs watching ESPN, he's sipping a cup of coffee, and I stopped, and I'm standing right in front of him, I'm going, 
18 plus years? Do you ever get bored of doing the same thing every five <laughs> days? I mean, it's a five-day cycle. It's the same thing year in and year out. And he took a sip of the coffee and gets this crooked smile. He goes, he goes, dude, man. He goes, I never get tired of winning. <laughs> ah, there you go. Actually, thanks to our pr- producer, Matt Datz. Um, how about, here's another name. I mean, look, we're projecting so far into the future. You know, isn't his nickname Mad Bum, Madison Baumgartner? Mm-hmm. 101 wins, and he's 27. So let's say he's pitched for six years. He's averaging 16 or 17 a year. Yeah. Does, as as do you've seen 12. him pitch, let's forget health for just a second. Does he have the kind of stuff? You've lived with a 300-game winner. Does he have the kind of stuff, the mechanics? Cause you, that matter of fact, that, I don't want to say that was your expertise. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think everyone thinks of you as kind of one of the people of all the history of baseball that focused on the mechanics of baseball. Mm-hmm. Does he have the mechanics that could get him to 300? Absolutely. Absolutely. So what do you see in him? Doesn't have a very good team. Well... So what do you see? But what do you see in him that when I when you said automatically, of course, what about his mechanics do you see that makes you think he could do this for another ten or fifteen? Well, years? he repeat he repeats his delivery. I mean, the the, num- the the number one, and not to get to get into the, the biomechanics really, but you have to, you, the, the number one critical factor. You have to have your arm in proper position at foot contact. That's the number one, the number one red flag. Does Kershaw? Yep, he's on time. He's he on is time. on time. He's on, he's on time. I mean, that's why he can repeat what he does over and over and over and over and over again. His issue is that he's got the back issues. You know, and, and once, I mean, the ankle joint's connected to the knee joint. The knee joint's connected to the hip joint. <laughs> and once that chain, once that, once that uh, kinetic chain has weak links, those, those weak links, they don't go away normally. You know, mm-hmm. they're, they're always there. I mean, you can do things to manage them. But it's always your Achilles heel, so to speak. And Bumgarner, so far, you know, he's you know he's been incredibly healthy. He's incredibly durable. He made a big adjustment going back about four years ago. He's way across his body when he lands, but he used to be on the first base side of the rubber. He slid all the way over on the third base side of the rubber to open up that plate for him, which that that took a, that took away a lot of stress, without question. So when you look at like Jared Weaver. There's a guy that's way across his body. He's way on the third base side of the rubber. And when he signed, he was in the mid nineties. And as time went mm-hmm. by, you know, this this velocity was just it was it was it was it was on a ski slope going downhill. And, you know, so I mean that that's what happens because how fast your hips rotate are directly linked to fastball velocity. So if you step way across your body, you're locking your hips out. They're not they're not able to rotate like they normally would would, would rotate. So Bumgarner, he's got he's got everything it takes. But when you're talking about you're two, you're close to 200 wins away. <laughs> yeah, only 199 away. Yeah, yeah. I'm well, that's I'm close. Well, that's joking. close. He's, yeah. he's far away. So here we're here on Wharton Moneyball talking to Rick Peterson, acclaimed uh, uh, keynote author uh, and also former pitching coach in the major leagues. This is Eric Brown. I'm here with Shane Jensen. If you want to join the conversation, if you have a question for. Uh, Rick, please call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Actually, um, thanks to Matt, uh, all kinds of numbers are coming up on my screen. Here's another one: King Felix, thirty one years old, but one hundred and fifty nine wins. So more than halfway there. Yeah, but he's he's too slow. Too slow on the pace, right? How, I mean, what is it, 15, 16 wins a season? Well, I mean, if he could pitch eight more years, if he could pitch till he's forty. 
Well, or thirty nine. Well, well, so let me ask you. Pitchers Rick, don't so, do that anymore. Well, uh, that's what I was going to ask you. So, what are the opportunities for pitchers? To, I mean, put, let's be honest. If you don't pitch till forty, your chances of you doing this. I mean, you'd have to win basically. Tw- now it's twenty times fifteen, but the other way, you better win twenty a year for fifteen years. Does what has made is is pitching longevity increasing? Is there is it like can it just be trained? What are you seeing? Or is it the opposite because guys are throwing harder, which is going to lower their longevity? Yeah, it's the, it's the opposite. You're not seeing pitchers pitching into their late 30s like Messina, you know, Nolan Ryan. I mean, forget about it. In, into your 40s, I mean that that's just ridiculous. Although if Tom Brady was a pitcher, I mean, he, uh, he, yeah, yeah, but he'd be the best pitcher ever. That's just kind of what he does. He can still throw the fastball. Yeah, yeah. right, right. He can still throw the fastball. But but I, I, I it's just it's just really just. I mean, the odds are just such so against. Any of these guys doing this, and you look at the guys that came close over the years, but didn't make it. I mean, Pedro only had two hundred, mm-hmm. right? You know, and 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 two hundred. I mean, again, when I went back and looked at Pedro's numbers in the press guide as he was approaching two hundred, I mean, you would have said it's a lock. I don't say a lock, but for you would have for two hundred, yeah. No, but sure. even potentially, you would have said he would have been a. No, he had too many careers on me. Uh, too much of his early career when he was really pitching well was right. on mediocre teams. Yeah. I mean, I mean, those, those Expos years killed him. You might have said, by the way, Sabathia might have been another guy that you said at one point, not today, now, but he yeah. was on trend to win potentially three hundred. Well, here, here's one of the other big factors when you look at it: a ground ball for ground ball pitchers, meaning that they have low spin rate. Which what we've learned from TrackMan, and they are pitching to the bottom of the strike zone, even though the trend is is changing. Yeah, right we're going to get to that right. in a second. Yeah, right. But when you look at Zach Britton, Zach Britton, sabermetrically, his fastball is rated the best pitch in all of baseball. It's a low spin rate at ninety five, ninety seven. It's a grounder. I mean, a year ago he had sixty plus innings. He gave up fifteen. Think about this. He had sixty plus innings. He gave up fifteen fly ball outs. Fifteen fly ball outs. Are it's you ridiculous, kidding me? Yeah, that's ridiculous. You're saying. Yeah. I mean, obviously, just for our listeners who are in Wharton Moneyball, what Rick's talking about is he's either striking you out or grounding you out, or it's a grounder. Yeah, and a, and, a, and a grounder, a ground ball, sabermetrically has a higher value than a swing and miss over long periods of time. Over long periods of time, because if it hits the ground and goes out of the ballpark, it's only two bases, and a ground ball normally it has very low. You know, when you look at home runs right now, and you know all those trends, a ground ball really but put, it, plays to itself have out. More value than a strikeout. That means, I mean, that that's over, factoring over, double plays and over, stuff like over that over a long period yeah. of time. Okay, like like in two thousand six. I mean, you go back to Mulder, Mulder, and, and and Hudson. They're in the top five of ground ball fly ball ratio every year. That that's why they were so good. So year, but, year in and year. So let me finish. Yeah, yeah, please. So 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 getting back to Sabathia. The four-seam fastball, the power guys typically are not going to – that fastball is, turns as time goes by, the swing and miss is declining. The ground ball is still a ground ball as their velocity is declining. Grounders – Tom Glavin was still getting grounders at the back end of his career, even though he was 85, 86. As a young kid, he was, he was 90, 91, but he was still getting grounders. So which pitchers have you seen successfully, let's say, transition from like, – you mentioned Nolan Ryan. Nolan Ryan was still a power pitcher a power at 40. Guy. Who have you seen – who have you seen through your career that has successfully transitioned from, let's call it a 94-95 guy to, let's say, an 87-90 to 90 guy and still been wildly successful? Hard to do, right? I can't think of anybody. Well, I mean, 
I, I guess he wouldn't come under the wildly successful, but I, I've been impressed by how CC uh, Sabathia's kind of totally. transitioned in his late career. He certainly has, totally. you know, gone from somebody who was a power pitcher to somebody who's more, you know, painting the corners and he's getting a, people out cutter, that way. He's a cutter slider. Um, so, I mean, I think he's an impressive case. He's certainly not wildly successful in what he does now, but I, I've been impressed by his longevity to, to be honest, no question. And but it but it took him a good two years. Oh, there to, was there was some transi- messy transition there. Yep, right, there was right. some a couple pretty bad seasons. So, Rick, I'd love to get your comments on. There's a recent article by mm-hmm. Rob Arthur of Five Thirty Eight, and it says here uh, it, the title of it is "Pitchers Are Adapting to the Home Run Strike." So, one of the things you talked about a lot on Wharton Moneyball. Well, first let me talk about what you you talked about, and then we'll get to Rob Arthur's. You used to talk a lot about the analytics of where people could hit well in the strike zone, high in the zone versus low in the zone. So could you first remind our listeners on Wharton Moneyball about kind of what what the data suggests about where people should pitch high, low, inside, outside, what you've observed? Well, the the batting average at the bottom of strike zone last year was 193, and that's if you touch the bottom of your kneecap and then go down below to your shin. So you see a ton of swings. Like when you watch a Grenke pitch or you watch a Kershaw, they get a ton of swings of pitches that go over the plate that are balls low. Hit, hitters will so swing at it. Balls, it, they're actually, are they in the strike zone? No, they're over the plate, but over they're the balls. Plate. Okay, 193. One, one, and it's, under, it's been under 200 every single year for the last like, 15, 20 years. Also to include, which I didn't really ever talk much about it, above the strike zone is under 200 as well. And and it's always been that. The only difference is the fact that at at the bottom of your kneecap, that's a strike. A fastball at your letters is a ball. Right. So you're counting on a swing. You're counting on a swing. Okay. And so when you look at long term, so it's it's not a place that you can go to right away and stay there because they're balls. Yeah. I mean, when you look at like most recently, Judd has gone through like a little bit of a slump. Aaron or, Judge, I, I, yeah, yeah. Or Judge. Uh, yeah. Not, not really a slump, but he's just going through an adjustment. Relative to his ridiculous right. pace, right. he's slowed down. And if you look at how they're pitching him, they're fastballs that are on the inside corner that are letter high. They're high. That's how, that's and, and if he keeps swinging at them, they'll keep throwing it there. I mean, so the, for his big adjustment now is to see that pitch and lay off yeah. of it. And, and, and typically what happens when you face those type of pitchers that are going to pitch you there, you kind of like gear in and say, listen, I'm seeing this pitch down. Yeah. If this pitch is above my waist, I'm, I'm taking it. You kind of really have to like get this mindset and discipline yourself that, you know, it's the same thing when you face like a guy like Tanaka. When you face a guy, when you look at Tanaka and his struggles, he struggles because he can't beat you in the strike zone. Yeah. When, when he does well, they're all pitches that are below the strike zone. So if you take them... And his split finger forkball has a bad knuckleball spin. It's not a fastball spin. So as soon as you see that spin, and he doesn't throw for called strikes. So as soon as you see that spin, you say take. So hitters basically saying, I need to see the ball up. I got to I got to see the ball up because one of the big data points from TrackMan is where is the ball at forty feet from home plate. They track where's the ball at forty feet from home plate. Okay. As far as strike zone and height. The reason they use 40 feet is because sabermetric experts will tell you that that's when the hitter makes up his mind. Well, I can. That's when the hitter, if the hitter's going to swing, he has to decide to swing at that point. It, it, will he continue to swing? Because yeah. when you watch hitters that lift yeah, their front all, foot, right. that front foot's off the ground way before that ball yeah. comes out of the pitcher's hand. So if you're in swing mode, so at 40 feet, a pitch that's about four to six inches below your kneecap, that's a strike. Mm-hmm. That's a strike at 40 feet in your mind. 
you know, you, and, and it, so if you start that swing, that's why Greinke, Greinke's whole game is to live below the strike zone over the plate. So let me tell you now, transition mm-hmm. to Rob Arthur's data. This is the curve we have in front of us. And now, thanks to the small font, it took me a while to look at it in my 50-year-old eyes, but I got it now. So what the curve shows, I'll describe it for our listeners here on the radio on Sirius XM 111. We basically have a curve that shows in the early to mid-2000s, uh, pitchers were higher. Then for the last seven or eight years to 2015, the height of the average pitch dropped. And then over the last two years, the height of the average pitch in the major leagues, that, that low point is 2015, the high point is now 2017, have kind of started to creep back up. And the argument here, and I'd love your thoughts on this, is that hitters are now more, if you'd like, trying to golf the ball. Players have more of an uppercut swing. They're swinging at lower pitches and possibly more effectively, and that has made pitchers start to raise the pitches in the strike zone. What would be your reaction to that? I mean, this is the data. It doesn't mean that there isn't an explanation for it. Uh, What are your thoughts on this? Well, when you listen to the data as far as swing plane, launch angles, they're up, as you said, you don't see hitters having swings like Derek Jeter had. Derek Jeter had a classic inside-out swing. And, and he had a lot of flares over the second baseman's head, the right field, and people would be like, geez, is he lucky? He's not lucky. That's great. <laughs> That's a great approach. That swing is going to produce, when he gets beat, it's going to produce th- those kind of flights of the ball. Now, because of, like if you go back a year ago, Robbie Cano had, had exit speed off the bat, one of the tops in the American League. His launch angle was low. He hit one home run in the first half. So basically, he's hitting home runs that are one hoppers to the second baseman. Yeah. Yep. And then they brought in Edgar Martinez, and he changed his his swing plane to get loft. So he got he got higher he got higher higher exit not higher mm-hmm. exit speeds but higher better launch l- angles launch yeah. angles. And then he hit twenty some homers in the second half. So that must be somewhat of the brilliance of of, of pitching low. Is it has to be that much harder to get that uppercut launch angle on a low it's pitch? E- it's right? easier. It's oh. easier. So when you look at why is Mike Trout arguably one of the best yeah. players in the game, he's a great he's a great low ball hitter. If you can't pitch Trout above the waist, you can't get him out. Yeah. Over time. But it, again, it's a ball. You know, so when you take a look at a swing, if you can if if the listeners can just take a swing of an uppercut swing, like if you if you flipped up a ball and you wanted to hit a fly ball to like to to for center fielders to practice fly balls, if the higher you get that pitch, if you flip it up and try to hit it about letter high, it's really difficult to it's really difficult to get that launch angle. Mm-hmm. The lower it is, but then again, right, because you're coming up to meet the ball. I see. Right, yeah, but then yeah. again, one of the best pitches in baseball still is a fastball that has about an inch or two on the outside corner that's at the very bottom of the kneecap. And and when you look at data over the years that I was a big league pitching coach, there wasn't one hitter that had a higher batting average than 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 two twenty on that pitch. And similar, uh, by the way, the same article shows, by the way, that pitchers now seem to be going back to the fastball more. So the same shaped curve shows not only are pitches getting higher, but the fraction of fastballs are going up. Any thoughts and explanation for why that might be true? Yes, because when when a hit when a pitcher gets ahead of the count, now you have pitches that you're going to expand the strike zone. What does expand the strike zone mean? Further down further in and further up. So now they're going to put away pitches that are more high fastballs mm-hmm. above the strike zone. They're expanding the zone more now with high fastballs and then breaking balls that are below, right. below the strike zone. So so in order to so in other words it's kind of like 
you know, when I would explain to our pitchers about how to utilize their pitches, because it's a very abstract, that's why they call it an art, the art of pitching, is the fact that you need pitches that complement each other. So the high fastball and, and the breaking ball with depth, they start on the same plane, and one's, one, one really just stays on the same plane, and the other one goes below the plane. Those two pitches complement each other. It's like peanut butter and jelly. you got right, flavors, yeah. you know, chocolate and, and peanut butter. And I would try to explain to pitchers that don't understand this. I say, look, do you like vanilla ice cream? Yeah, I love vanilla ice cream. You like ketchup? Yeah, I love ketchup. You like ketchup on your vanilla ice cream? Not a good match. <laughs> right. So you're throwing pitching sequences that don't match. They're not, they're not complementary to each other. And complementary in the sense that they look the same coming out of the pitcher's hand, but do very dramatically different things. So, I mean, so another complementary pairing that a lot of pitchers have is just fastball changeup, right? Exactly. But but to, to the sabermetric experts... These are multiple progressions, is mm-hmm. what they come down to. So, so, right. you're, so you're in it. You have the pitch you, sequence, right? You yeah. have three ways to attack a hitter: in and out, up and down, and back and forth by changing speeds. So, if I throw a fastball up and I throw a breaking ball uh, down and away below the strike zone, I just covered three variables in two pitches. That's a multiple progression. That's is your area. Yeah. I mean, there's only 10 numbers, including zero, and nobody has the same phone number. Go figure that out. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> I want to ask you, since we have you here for just a few more minutes, um, and it's, you know, everybody knows there are two big things in the Bradlow household besides the Super Bowl and besides the World Series. One, of course, is the hot dog eating contest. We're already past July 4th. But the second one, which you and I have talked about on the air many times, is the Hall of Fame ceremony. Mm. So, by the way, the induction ceremony is this Sunday. For those of our fans that don't know, you can watch it on MLB Network starting at one thirty live on Sunday. It's one of my favorite times because they bring back all the old Hall of right, Famers. Right, right, By right. the way, I was glad to see his health has improved. Henry Aaron's going mm. to be there this year for the How first cool time. Well, in my view, as, people, as Bud Selig used to say, um, he's the true home run champion. But we could get to that at a different time. Any reaction to the three guys that are being inducted into the Hall of Fame this year? Uh, I'll say their names. If you could just give us 30 seconds to a minute on each, any recollection, any memory of anyone. So the first mm-hmm. one, Jeff Bagwell. Any thoughts about Bagwell as a hitter? Well, just I know like when we would come in to face those the killer bees, I mean, you would always, you know, you'd get the sweaty palms a little bit. <laughs> you get to dry mouth. And then, you know, it's interesting because I would look at so much videotape and then so much data of how you pitch these guys. So when I would see... Like walk by like a Jeff Bagwell, I'd, I'd, I'd be like, "Hey Jeff, how you doing?" And I'm going pound fastballs in, breaking balls below the zone. <laughs> you know, you go through like how you how you would get him out. Yeah. Um, but he was just always just, just so dangerous, and you know the the quality of bats and were just one after the next after the next. That's why guys go to the Hall of Fame. They grind this out for. You don't go to the Hall of Fame because you did this for five years. Yeah. How about the Rock? Tim Raines. Any well, recollections of Tim Raines? You know, one of my favorite players growing up. Well, you know what? I was I was with the White Sox when Timmy was there playing, oh. and Timmy and I became really good friends. And and to this day, and and in fact, was interesting years during that time, they had a um, in Las Vegas they had an arm wrestling contest, and none of the players really wanted to go. So I was a coach, and they said, "Hey, how would you like to go?" I said, "Look, you know, free trip to Las Vegas. I'm I'm happy to like you know ready go boom I'm done," and Rock won it. Wow! Yeah, nice. he, he won it. So he wasn't called the Rock for nothing. Yeah, but he, I mean, just a special, unique guy. 
always a smile away, no matter what was going on. You know, he always had this sense of humor, could always laugh at himself and laugh at like these really pressure situations. Really just a unique, special guy. And the last one, just in our last 30 seconds or so, um, is someone that, and this relate, allow me to ask you another question about the role of catchers for pitchers, is Pudge Rodriguez. Mm-hmm. So could you talk about the role, not just about Pudge, but about the role? How is it that important? Like, could I get back there and have caught uh, Tom Glavin and gotten 300 wins? You know, do you, how important is the catcher to the pitcher, and what do you think of Pudge? It's it's absolutely huge. That, what, that's so I what, couldn't have been back there and just caught the guy and well, started, maybe, you know, put well, up one finger, two, three, whatever it is. Well, well maybe. maybe. <laughs> when, we, when we finish, we'll have you, like, we'll practice blocking yeah. balls. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's, I mean, that's why they call it a battery, you know, mm. without question. There's this security blanket, and it's so amazing, and, and I, I would have never thought this until I experienced it, that even like a like a Tom Glavin, he did not he did not want to shake off the catcher. Mm-hmm. I mean, he wanted to. Interesting. Yeah, a lot a lot of starting pitchers, they they don't they just don't want to do that. You know, their their focus is on literally just hit the glove, hit the glove, hit the glove, and they trust this. And in fact, I heard an interview yesterday um, on the fan with Pudge. He just came out with a book like mm-hmm. they call me Pudge. And he talked about the fact. Nice that, name. I like the name yeah, of that book. I think I think one of the second games he caught in the big leagues, he caught Nolan Ryan, and he was wow. talking about that experience. And Nolan and, and he got together, and Nolan said, "Listen, you know, I know, you know, here's how I want to pitch the game, and you put down the fingers, and I, I totally trust what you're doing." And that was as, as a 19 year old kid. But the one thing about Pudge, which was amazing, Pudge never took a called strike. We would play them 19 games when I was in Oakland. We played Texas 19 games, and so I would, you know, I had a, a unique way I charted, and so I'd put like these lineup cards down, and so I had, a, if it was a circle that was empty, that was a called strike. A circle filled in, totally, that was a swing and miss, and a circle with a slash to it was contact. So I laid, you know, I'd, I'd have all these lineup cards, and I lay them down, like I got 15 of them, and I'm going like, 15 games, he's taken one called strike, one called strike. Are you kidding me? Like he's swinging, he is swinging, and the called strike he took was a breaking ball that was supposed to be down in a way that started at him, and he kind of flinched like this, or else he would have yeah. swung at it. Like, he couldn't walk him. And we would come in there and say, listen, if we walk Pudge, like, we have a three-game series. If we walk Pudge six times this series, it's okay. It's okay, because he's swinging. He's, he is swinging. But, but he was one of those guys that he played the game with joy, and, and that was the one thing about it. I mean, you're catching in Texas – with all that gear on in the summertime, mm-hmm. and you better degrees. enjoy it. Wow! Yeah, and he would always have a smile on well, his face. Well, at least he got to relax in Miami afterwards. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah, I think that was when the wind chill was like yeah. ninety nine. Well, Rick, we want to thank you uh, in person. Uh, thanks for all the time you're spending us with here on Morton Moneyball. Of course, we'll have you back in two weeks. Uh, also, thank you for the time you're going to spend with the high schoolers, including my son Zach Bradlow. All uh, right, very cool. This afternoon, uh, talking to them about your Moneyball experience. So again, we've been talking to Rick Peterson, former MLB pitching coach, author of Crunch Time, How to Be Your Best When It Matters Most. Rick, thank you for joining us here on Morton Money Ball. My pleasure. Real joy. So that's three quarters of the show down, one quarter of the show to go. Uh, please join us after the break.
Thanks again to our sound engineer, Daniel Bruno, for bringing us back on music I do not recognize, but I'm sure there are many fans out there that are saying, wow, that's wonderful, great, and even recognizable music. So we're here on Wharton Moneyball. I'm Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen. We've just been finished live in studio with Rick Peterson, keynote speaker, acclaimed co-author, acclaimed author as well. Um, and of course, if you want to join the conversation, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And also thanks to our producer, Matt Datz, who just tweeted out the two pictures that we were talking about with Rick Peterson. So if you want to follow it, uh, go on to at W Moneyball. Uh, we'd be happy if you tweeted at us. Um, I'm very active on social media. I will tweet back, give you some thoughts as well. So there was another set of stats, uh, Shane, that caught my eye this week. And it wasn't a good set, but it was so data-driven that I wanted to talk to you about it. So a lot of our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball may have heard that they unfortunately did a study of former players for uh, chronic you know, brain injuries. These are deceased former players. Former NFL players? For, well, it was former. No, I'll get to that. And so it was former football players, okay. many of whom were NFL players, but not all. So let me tell you the stats, and then I'd love your reaction to this. So of the 111 NFL, former NFL players they tested, 110 out of 111 had evidence of brain injury. <laughs> now, wait, let me say, but let me even say, you, normally as a statistician, you would say that's overwhelming evidence. But let me even tell you the other day, and I want your reaction to it, why I think there's even more overwhelming evidence. 100 out of 110 for the, 110 out of 111 for the NFL. Notice how the fractions are about to go down, but in a monotone way. 48 out of 53 for college, 9 out of 14 for semi-pro, 3 out of 14 for high school, and 0 out of 10 for younger players. Mm-hmm. So notice I'm not I'm trying to bring a statistical argument yeah. here and I'd love to hear your reaction to it. Notice what impressed me, impressed is the wrong word scared me was 110 out of 111 is overwhelming statistical yeah, data. it's almost near certainty. It's But notice how it's monotonically decreasing with dosage. Yeah. Exposure. Exposure. Yeah, exposure is a better way. College is about 90%. Semi-pro down to 60%. High school down to 20%. Younger players at zero. Yeah. So could you talk from a statistician's perspective about how, like, when you get a fact, that's impressive. But when you get this kind of exposure outcome yeah. relationship, that has to be even a greater signal. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, about no, that. I mean, I, I think that's right. I think it's sort of your your. I mean, you know, the kind of the area of statistics uh, that that would sort of be the best way to kind of model this would be survival analysis, right? You could fit. So tell our of, listeners yeah. a little bit about what what the field of survival analysis is about. Well, it's 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 essentially about kind of predicting some end event, right? And 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 ideally predicting some end event. I mean, it comes up mostly in in, in kind of the medical field where you're trying to predict, say, age to you know age until a particular disease or something like that. And it's usually you're trying to model that as a function of some sort of exposure like you could sort of say like you know a classic one would be amount of exposure to lead or time exposed to lead and you know what what how that predicts you know something like cancer or, or, or some other disease here we have the, the exposure is playing football Yep. And and the outcome is brain injury, and it's it's again like the, the sort of you know what 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 Eric basically with these f- kind of fractions at different you know points has done is sort of broken up what is really kind of a continuous curve into a few different kind of breakpoints 
people that have actually made it to the NFL, people that have made it to college, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, I mean, just based on the the stat, the, the fractions that you're quoting, I mean, it's clear that there is an exposure, an exposure outcome, outcome, outcome relationship. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, the two interesting things, and again, we're a sports statistics and business show. So to me, not only does this data show that there's an exposure outcome relationship, but there's an exposure outcome relationship where the end point is a very high number. I mean, there could be an exposure yeah. outcome relationship, but it's one out of 111. Well, right. I mean, I mean, but in it, this case, it's an exposure outcome relationship, and the high exposure group yeah. is at almost yeah. 100%. I, I mean, again, uh, you know, the cancer is a canonical example of where you'd use these exposure curves. In cancer, we get, like, super upset slash excited about something where it increases your exposure from, you know, 0.1% to 1%. I mean, can you imagine engaging in that activity where, you know— 110 out of 111 people at the end of this get cancer? I I I would think that that no, would I, change I, I, the mathematics dramatically. I don't, I don't dramatically. think many people would do that. It would have to feel pretty awesome at the time for you to I, like I think entertain that kind of activity, but obviously you know, with with football and brain injury, we have that kind of exposure outcome relationship. We still have people engaging in it. Oh, that's certainly true. There's other two, a couple other events that caught my eye in sports I'd love to get re- your reaction to. Now, this doesn't include last night's game, although I'm pretty sure he did not hit a home run or hit an ar- or drive in a run. So prior to the All-Star break, our favorite guy, Aaron Judge, <laughs> yeah. had 30 home runs and 66 RBIs. Let's assume essentially in half the season. Mm-hmm. So you can just double those numbers and say he was on a 60-130 pace. Since the All-Star break, and again, for our listeners, don't want a bunch of angry tweets at me or calling us at one eight four wharton one eight four four wharton saying, Bradlow's wrong. I'm not including yesterday's game. He had played 11 games and had two home runs and seven RBIs. And people were like, oh my God, that's awful. Well, if you multiply that by 15, which is, would be a full season, after the break, he slumped to a 30 home run 105 pace. So let's just be clear that his slump is still a pace of 30 home runs and 100 RBIs in a season. How, at what point in time do we start? Wait, I mean, it must be more than 30 home runs. No, no, I'm saying he had two home runs in 11 games. Yeah. So you multiply that roughly by 15. 15 times 11 is 165. So the pace he's on, I'm saying. So he's still on a 30 home run pace. Like 30 per per No, no, I was just saying. No, no, no. Yeah, no, no. I was saying. If he hit an entire season see, I, like I he has hit saying. since yeah. the All Star break, he would. St- people say, so "Oh my he God, he's slumped." If he keeps well, it that All Star post All Star game break, he's going to be on pace for like forty five home runs. Correct. Or so. yeah. yeah, but I was just trying to make. Yeah. I, I, that's a good point too. But I was trying to make a different point. Like people say, "Oh my God, he's in this deep slump." Well, mm-hmm. if we just take the rate he's hit for the last eleven games and said, "Let's pretend it was a whole season," that's still a thirty one hundred guy, yeah, which s- that ain't so bad. It's and by a the slump way, only to. Or with pers- relative to his ridiculous pace. In the As a matter of fact, half. you might agree that maybe his true strength is thirty one hundred, and that you know what, that the sixty one thirty pace. That's yeah. the anomaly, and what we're going to see for the season is a blend, and maybe we'll end up at 45-110, yeah. 45-115. Yeah, I, I, and we'll see sort of how it averages out. I mean, he is hitting 158 after well, the All-Star not, break, you so were, you would, I, I again... The true, you know, I mean, he probably wasn't the 330 hitter that he was before the All Star break, and he's probably not the 158 hitter that he is after the All Star break. It's going to average out to something it's reasonable, fa- actually, something amazing. Probably. It's fascinating that you bring that up. Cause, so let's talk about that. You remember a couple weeks ago, you and I were here, and we said if he doesn't win the Triple Crown, will it be on home runs, 
RBIs and batting average. So what your your opinion, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but from what I just heard from you, there's a belief here that it's probably going, your belief is, well, forget now, it's almost yeah. certain it's not going to be on batting average. But you would have maybe said, given your knowledge of yeah. his game, that batting average would be the one where he would have the hardest. And yeah. also there's the data that suggests this guy has a massive, he may strike out 200 times in the season. Right. So this guy has a massive strikeout rate, but as you also know, of all the players who have ever played the game, I think he's got the highest batting average of balls in play. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, that's right. Uh, he, he certainly has one of these historically high batting averages on balls in play. And people have kind of rationalized that as not going to, you know, and so somebody who just looks at that particular statistic without any other context would say, well, he's he's definitely prone for some regression to the mean because batting average on balls in play is mostly about luck. And so that'll come down and therefore his batting average will come down with it. What that doesn't take into account is there are systematic ways in which somebody can have a consistently high batting average on balls in play. One, The main way being you really hit it very, very hard. And Judge hits it harder Hard. than anybody we've ever seen, basically. And a lot of his balls in play, of course, are home runs. Yeah. So that's no, part. I mean, he, he's hitting it through people, basically. So that's another that's another thing as well. I want to also read you, since we're, Rick Peterson got us you know, amped up for baseball, and we just talked about Aaron Judge in baseball, I want to read you the data from two teams, okay? I won't tell you yet who the team, three teams. I won't tell you who the teams are, and I'd just like to get re- your reaction. Right. So there's a team in the major leagues right now. That has a fifty-nine and thirty-nine record. Would you agree that's a very good record? That's really good. Really good. Okay. And by the way, their plus-minus on runs, so runs scored minus runs against, is one hundred three. Okay. All right. We have another team that has a fifty-two and forty-six record. You would agree that's fine. Yeah, it's I'm, not I'm, great. I'm, yep. Yeah. That team is plus one hundred six. <laughs> nice. Now we also have a team. That's 52 and 49. So essentially the same as the 52 and 46 team. And that team is only plus nine. So let me say it again for our listeners out there. We have one team that's 59 and 39 at plus 103. We have another team that's 52 and 46 at plus 106. So those two teams are essentially the same plus minus, and they've played the same number of games. But one team is seven games better than the other team. Then we have another team that has the same record as the middle team, but instead of being, essentially, but instead yep. of being plus 106, they're plus 9. Yep. So what's your reaction? How would you score the top team there, the best record, the middle team, the lower team? Just your reaction from record and plus minus on runs. Is it the middle team has bad closing? Is it the bottom team has gotten lucky? Is it the top team has gotten lucky? How, how do you think about yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's certainly a, 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 a luck component involved. And then I will tell you who the teams are. I, I hope you do. Um, but I, I, I do say, like, when I've sort of watched kind of team, I mean, what we're really talking about is kind of teams that are under versus overperforming their Pythagorean record. And you know, just remind you our of, listeners again what so that is. So you basically you can essentially make a you know run differential like how what your plus minus is in terms of runs is is obviously correlated relatively usually relatively highly with your winning record. And you know the kind of conventional sort of like you know translation is ten runs is about a win, right? So. So, again, you know, a, a team that's sort of plus 100 or whatever should be about 10 wins above 500. 
Um, and they're twenty. Yeah. So so obviously the team at the top, the, the the first team with the great record, um, is outperforming their plus minus. Uh, the team that's you know then we've got a team that's sort of. Plus one hundred six. That's six games over five hundred. Yeah. So underperforming. And underperforming. then we got another team that's basically at five hundred and is only plus nine. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so, I mean that 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 te- that last team is kind of in line with what we sort of expect. I guess you know they basically are at five hundred both in terms of runs and in terms of wins. So we're um, yeah we're here on Morton Moneyball again. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm talking to Shane Jensen. We're talking plus minus and runs scored. And of course, I'll, and, in just and a second, consistently the team uh, one one sort of predictor, good predictor of a team out under or overperforming plus minus is, is based on bullpen. So the Yankees, for example, in the Mariano Rivera years consistently overperformed their plus minus. They were winning more games than they kind of should have based on the run differential. And that's because he was, you know, this elite closer that ensured essentially that they won a a disproportionate number of those close games. Right. So we're again, we're here on Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School. And I'm here with my co-host this morning, professor of statistics, Shane Jensen. If you want to join the conversation, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email our producer, Matt Datz, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And again, Matt's been doing lots of good tweeting throughout the show, and I will be doing it after the show, at W Moneyball. So, so now, that, let me so tell that, you who the teams well, are. Okay, well, let, let me first uh, just kind of guess. That middle team that is under... Is so it says to me that that middle team that basically is where the wins are not commiserate with their kind of very large uh, run differential plus minus yep. is a team with not a good bullpen. Okay. Well, it's the New York Yankees. <laughs> it's a team that should definitely have a good bullpen. Well, but so it's true. They have not had a very good bullpen this year, so interestingly can, enough. Now, can you just say to our listeners why we both agree they should have a bullpen, well, a great I mean, bullpen? I mean, good, good, goodness. I mean, they've got Cha- uh, Chapman, Chapman Batances, um, you know. Miller uh, now? Um, Don't they have Miller? Well, didn't they get? They didn't get Miller back. No, they got Robertson. Sorry, Robertson. They, they got David Robertson. Yeah, Robertson, trade. and then Kali or Kaylee. Yeah. I may be pronouncing That's his name t- wrong. I mean, again, on paper, that was a t- that was a bullpen at the start. Of the- In fact, the bullpen we looked looking at the Yankees on paper at the start of the season. There, the ones kind of quote unquote certainty we had is like, well, we're not sure what their hitting or, or pitching is going to be like, but their bullpen should be lights out. Yep. So, and let me tell you who the bottom team is. Yep. Turns out to be the Tampa Bay Rays. Mm. So they're fifty-two and forty-nine yeah. at a plus nine, which, as you would agree, that's about that's expectation. About right, that's about right, expectation. Right where you'd want them. Do you want to guess who the top team is? They're fifty-nine and thirty-nine with exactly the same plus-minus. Well, essentially the fact that they're fifty-nine the and thirty-nine makes it relatively easy. easy. There's only like three or two or three teams it could be. Um, I don't know. Nationals. It's the Nationals. Ah! I guess you know it was, it was between them, the Dodgers and Astros, based on that record. Yep, and actually, the uh, I know the Astros have even more than fifty nine wins. But yeah. so, any explanation for the Astros? I mean, for the Nationals? Well, again, I, I don't. I, I mean, I think the Yankees are the only ones that stand out in that particular triplet of teams that kind of are are disp- are, are not commiserate with their. So, I mean. I think the Nationals are probably kind of just, I mean, I don't think they have a particular bullpen strength or weakness. They just are winning about the same number of games as you would expect. So if you had to predict from this point forward, who's going to win? Uh, This is a tough, actually, it's not an easy statistical question. If you had to predict for the last, let me count this up, 98, 64 games, who's going to win more games among those 64, the Yankees or the Nationals? Now, on the one hand, the Nationals have a higher current win percentage. On the other hand, the Yankees have a slightly higher, but essentially the same 
Pythagorean runs for against, who's going to win more on the next 64? Would you predict the same? Uh, any thoughts about this? How would you use I think that the Yankee, data? I, I mean, I think the Yankees are probably going to win at a, high, a higher pace than they have been because I think they'll probably, you know, I mean, this their bullpen has gotten better, and, and so they'll probably kind of regress up to a better winning percentage based on their run differential. But I think the Nationals will win more games than the Yankees because the Nationals are a better team. And so have, you're just and, saying and have less divisional competition. Yeah. So you're just adjusting, saying, look, right yeah. now they're essentially winning. They're they're winning sixty percent of their the Yankees games. Are the Yankees a better are better team than they have showed so but far. Not a 60%, but not percent. Not a ninety-seven not a, not win a team, team like the Nationals. Not they're a ninety-seven. Just, just they're exactly. just not that good. Right. All right. One last topic in our last two minutes here on Wharton Moneyball. Um, there's also a soccer tournament going on, the Concacaf. Uh, uh, yeah. and, the, and tonight. As a matter of fact. The Gold Cup. The Gold Cup. The USA is playing Jamaica. So, Justin, our last two minutes, just to give you some quick data, the USA was 7-5 to five to win the tournament at the start. Mexico was the favorite at 6-5, to five, got beaten by Jamaica. Jamaica was 33-1 to one to actually win this. So how the hell did Jamaica get into the finals of the CONCACAF? And is this a new trend you think we're going to be seeing in soccer where, you know, the, the you know, Jamaica's going to go to the World Cup no, and start beating no, teams? No, no, oh, no. no. So, no so, I, mean, I mean, I think, again... Uh, a Concacaf is is not the kind of helpful that you get the World Cup and uh, soccer. There's a lot of randomness in soccer. To, random teams can win, uh, string together a few wins in a row. So I'll tell you something. Canada won the Gold Cup a few years ago. Canada. Canada. Soccer's not the number one sport in Canada? No, as it turns out, it's not the number one sport. And Canada, I mean, I don't even know when the last time Canada even made it to the World Cup was. But, I mean, so in these kind of regional tournaments— Weird things can happen, and Jamaica's the weird thing of this year. I, I don't think I'd predict a lot. Of, I mean, you know, I wouldn't predict a lot of long-term success for Jamaica just based on this. Any chance you'll be tweeting on at W Moneyball tonight about the Jamaica-USA game? Any chance you'll watch that game? Oh, I'll, I'll, there's a good chance I'll watch that game. There's a much lower chance I tweet about it. All right. Well, that's been our two hours here on Morton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. Uh, this is Eric Brother. It's been my honor to be here this morning with Shane Jensen and for part of the time, Adi Weiner, and of course, our guest, Kevin Farrigan, and of course, uh, Rick Peterson. Um, thanks to our producer, our first day producer, uh, Matt Datz. Thanks to our executive producer, Patty Hall, and of course, to our associate producer and sound engineer, Danielle Bruno. Um, lots of exciting sports coming up in the next week. Uh, lots, I'm sure, of exciting things going to be going on in the NBA in this next week. And I'm going to be interested to see how teams try to build themselves in the NBA to catch the, the juggernaut of the Golden State Warriors. So this has been a great two hours uh, between now and next week. Enjoy your sports. Enjoy your statistics. Enjoy your business. We'll see you next week here on Wharton Moneyball.